Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Friday, August 12th, and I'm Nicole Braden Lewis, Chair of the Lutheran Metropolitan Ministry Board of Directors and proud member of the City Club. I am honored to present to you the second forum in the City Club's Behavioral Health Series, which takes a look at the continuum of care for mental health and substance abuse in our community. Last month, the City Club hosted a conversation that took a bird's eye view of behavioral health. Today, we will take a deeper dive, focusing on one of the most medically vulnerable populations, the unhoused. Lutheran Metropolitan Ministries Men's Shelter at 2100 Lakeside is the largest shelter in the state of Ohio, serving up to 365 men per night, with an additional 30 to 60 beds available at partner sites. We know that homelessness and behavioral health profoundly influence each other, often in reinforcing ways. The unhoused are at greater risk for high blood pressure, asthma, infectious disease, and other chronic conditions. The experience of being homeless also increases the likelihood of depression and anxiety, and can, ex and can exacerbate existing health issues, including behavioral health issues. Without safe and reliable housing, things like access to treatment and critical follow-up care become a more difficult challenge. So what are the opportunities and gaps that exist in the continuum of behavioral health care amongst our regions unhoused? Joining us on stage to discuss are Billy Gilliam, Clinical Director of Homeless Services at the YWCA of Greater Cleveland. The YWCA has multiple homeless initiatives and centers, including Independence Place for young adults, many of whom have aged out of foster care. Cogswell Hall, a 41-unit permanent solution to homelessness, and the Norma Herr Women's Center, a low-barrier shelter for women. Jennifer Harrison, Director of Behavioral Health, Housing, and Employment Services at Frontline, which provides 24-7 crisis and trauma services to Cuyahoga County. Frontline operates the largest continuum of clinical and social services for homeless persons in the state of Ohio. And Chris Nestrick, Executive Director of the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless, which aims to break the cycle of homelessness in Northeast Ohio by eliminating the root causes of homelessness through organizing, advocacy, education, and street outreach. Moderating today is Kabir Bhatia, reporter at IdeaStream Public Media. If you have questions for our panelists, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet questions at the City Club, and City Club staff will try to work them into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please welcome me in Please join me in welcoming our esteemed panelists and Kabir Bhatia. Kabir. Thanks.
Thanks very much. Good afternoon. Okay, I've missed that for the last two years doing that. So welcome everyone, and to just jump right into things, uh, we're going to start, we've all been discussing this uh, for a while here. Jennifer, talk a little bit about right now, the county is strategically planning everything, the budget, they're looking at the continuum of care. Where are the gaps that you're seeing when it comes to the continuum of care in this case? Yeah, I, I first wanted to quickly thank the City Club for hosting this important series and for the sponsors and the partners in the community who made this possible. Not every community has conversations like this, and so I, I really just wanted to take a moment um, and be grateful for the fact that all of the players are in the room um, who really influence the systems of care for our most vulnerable members of our community. So thank you for being here and, and for your um, partnership and sponsorship. I think that many lessons have been learned um, over the course of the global pandemic, which was in Cleveland superimposed upon the opioid crisis, um, about the gaps and also the strengths of our system. One of the things that I'm particularly excited about in terms of the strategic planning process, which is being um, headed by the Office of Homeless Services and the Homeless Services Task Force, is the opportunity to use data in a new and different way. I think that data is really gonna be the key to us, creating a more streamlined, um, more effective, more evidence-based practice aligned system of care for our system. So I, I think part of that conversation is gonna to be to figure out what are the indicators of the health of our system, the health of the participants that we serve. What are the measures of quality, whatever the measures of success for us as a system, for the provider organizations, and then of course for the individuals we serve. Interesting. Billy, you were, when we were discussing this, you were saying you're able to do housing services. Mm -hmm. What is the data telling you though about beyond that? Because you're having trouble getting people beyond that, long-term care, that sort of thing, especially with COVID hitting. Yes, definitely. And again, I want to want to appreciate Jennifer for going first because she can <laughs> remind me to thank everyone for allowing me to be in this space, to be able to advocate for individuals who cannot necessarily always advocate for themselves and being part of this process. And I thank for everyone for uh, just being here and being ready to do the next step. Now, the, the gap that I see is in uh, services that allow people to sustain their housing right so individuals we can get them to that space but there's a series of wraparound services that they need longer than what we're always able to provide that allow them to maintain their housing right so an individual can get sheltered but can they sustain shelter do they have the problem solving skills are there the behavioral health or substance use treatment uh, um, assistance in order to help them maintain that level of care even in, even in terms of family when individuals reunite with family we usually work with just women singular at Norma her but when they're reuniting with family there's not a lot of services that are connected well enough to allow them to sustain their um, housing and you're finding and I think Chris you're finding this too that, that your staff is having to do a lot of these things and that's not what they're there for in a lot of cases and I think the the quote from you was that you're you're not case workers you're one-on-one -on -one workers yeah when I think about this conversation and I think about this work I think about a 75 year old woman that I met living in a bus station last night in a wheelchair or I think about the young man that overdosed under the bridge on the west side of Cleveland or I think about the the person that has so much trauma and is currently sleeping on 
a porch of a house that they once lived in and they have so much trauma that they carry that they don't feel like going to one of the shelters is an option for them. And those are the people that our outreach staff is working with one-on-one. -on -one. And I really think some of the successes we've seen, and I think COVID has shown us and has exasperated the mental health and behavioral health on the streets of Cleveland for folks that are unhoused in a way that we are still beginning to understand. Um, but I think some of our work has, and the work that needs to happen is really to begin to, to really work side by side with individuals and enter into their, their reality of where they're at, right? And, and accompany them into places to be able to get therapeutic care in our community. You know, I think so much of our system has been, you know, go to this appointment here or show up here. And I think we don't fully understand that that's really an impossibility for so many of our people, right? And so how are we thinking about embedding care into, uh, whether it's the shelter system, whether it's into street outreach, whether it's um, in a deeper level is I think really some of the work that needs to happen. And I would say the other thing that COVID has shown us is that you know, the therapeutic model of decongregating shelters like has been very successful in getting people access to care. Um, I think of people that, you know, would have never gone to frontline if they weren't, you know, in a room kind of able to process and be on, on their own and then being able to be connected to services from there. Because if they're walking the streets 24-7, trying to find a place to eat, just simply trying to survive, like the idea of getting to an appointment is really difficult and I don't, you know, and so I think there's, those are some of the gaps and also some of the opportunities that we have moving forward. How do you, how do you embed something like that on the streets? Yeah, I think there are great models. I think there's some of that work is happening already at Frontline, uh, but I think there's great models of having uh, a psychiatrist like embedded into street outreach work at a deeper level. I think there are uh, street psychiatrist work happening all over our country. And I think, you know, same thing with, uh, you know, like medical street outreach teams that are also connected to behavior health and really coupled with some type of care um, kind of navigator, peer navigator to be able to really get to places and, and get access to hospitals and the care they needed in hospitals. When you're trying to get people in the hospitals, though, you find a lot of times that's that's problematic. It's not possible. Financial barriers, that sort of thing. Uh, how do you get around that? There are, one, I want to actually just thank the hospital systems for the care that we right. do get to have. Let me just start there. Because <laughs> I still need to, them. not trying to dump on the hospital <laughs> systems, but, you know, there's always going to be issues. <laughs> but I already, especially with COVID and the confounding with what they've had to deal with, it's even harder now, right? in order to have individuals get the care they need for, for a population that's so transient, right? Um, and we're really good like at this like acute um, compassion, acute empathy thing, right? We can handle the moment situation. It's when we're asking for chronicity, compassion, chronicity, empathy, when we're looking for things to say, let's not just look at the situation that's happening with the individual, how about the system that's maintaining the situation that's happening with the individual? And I think that's where we tend to falter a lot because even in, in the hospital, they see an individual that's stable, right? But he's, this individual is not necessarily stable in the shelter environment. 
you know, and they see the individual. What we see is a exp uh, exponential impact that happens across the board. So one person's uh, 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 psychotic episode triggers and it becomes this uh, impact that, in, that the entire staff is impacted by. So there are barriers in making sure that the care is um, consistent, I would say, and even just, it's not always just about, um, usually what I'm working with the hospital is like, is this person going to kill someone else? Is this person going to kill themselves? Those are usually the extremes, but it's, it's not just that. They're not always psychologically safe for themselves and or others, so that's where there is a barrier in order to handle that population that we're not really uh, called to handle in the shelter because we're trying to get individuals housed and get to the next step. True, true. Are you finding the same thing at Frontline? We are. I think that um, with the introduction of the behavioral health urgent cares that the centers uh, spoke about in the first part of the series, I think we're slowly adding more pieces of the puzzle to our continuum, but I think we have a long way to go. We um, have an under-resourced and very overwhelmed system, uh, particularly after COVID, that's trying to grapple with the demands of a rising, um, rising need for services at all levels, at the acute level, at the chronic level. So when I think about you know, the situations that we encounter in the permanent supportive housing space, we have individuals who are, are in behavioral health crisis um, and who need some more options rather than just a 24-hour you know, stabilization period in, um, in an emergency department. Um, they need some sort of an intermediate space to go. Um, so I think, that, I think that we're slowly working on um, strengthening and, and um, making sure that people aren't falling through the holes of that safety net continuum of care. Um, but that's, that's really what we're seeing as a need in our space as well. When, when folks come to any of your facilities and they've, they've interfaced with uh, police who are trained in CIT, talk about, I know that's a related topic, talk about how that's a benefit or you know, it's a problem when that's not been the case, when CIT isn't there. Because I imagine that's going to make it even more difficult to deal with the uh, issues that they're, they're experiencing and get them into something long-term. This is for any of you. Well, the utilization of the CIT from Cleveland Police Department, the only problem I see is that they don't already have a relationship for the most part developed with the guests that stay with us that reside, right? Um, and so there's not this consistent ongoing understanding between the guests and the whoever uh, police officers providing the services. Um, what we've done at Norma Her is develop our own CIT team, right? We, we had initially police officers, we then we moved into security uh, professionals who were contracted in, and it really is not fair to security professionals who are paid contracted in at $10 an hour who worked at Walgreens yesterday and now they're working at a place today in an environment that's so very different than what they're acclimated to and it's so challenging. So we end up learning that it was better to look at individuals who have a certain temperament and who we can train in the same type of model that the police are trained in that provide that level of service on site. And it has, it has definitely been successful in terms of my perspective. I see incident rates um, going down dramatically in-house. So I'm very happy and excited for the team who assisted in putting that together. But, but not everybody can do that, right? Yeah, I think... Um, put I mean, together I think their own team, I mean. 
Yeah, but I think that's a model that we should be looking at in our community. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if it's appropriate to have the police officers that are, are entering into behavioral health crises. I mean, I don't know if that's their role. I think we have trained, amazing social workers in our community and medical staff that would be more appropriate to be able to deal with a mental health crisis that's on the street, whether it's in public square or a particular house. And so I think some of our work, and I think you'll, I think there's a another city club coming up to talk about this is like. What does a care response model look like in our community? We've seen successful models throughout the country of non-police intervention around mental health crisis. And I really think that that's, you know, I think when I think of like, when, you know, someone is a threat to themselves or others and we, you know, and there was a probate out for someone for, to, to hospitalize one of our clients that we work with, that, you know, oftentimes it's, you know, we're, we're the ones that like are the in-between be, to work with them, to get them into, care it's you know and so I would really I think it's a challenge that we have to look at is that like how can we imagine a CIT team that doesn't involve you know the power the poli policing and I think you know the clearly there's there's reasons that um, you know sometimes police might be involved in something you know criminal activity or whatever but I think that uh, definitely it's easy it should be a no-brainer to say that you know if we have people sleeping on RTA stations that uh, don't have housing and are struggling with their mental health like police are not the appropriate people to deal with that right like like it should be it should be mental health work it should be outreach workers street outreach workers I would say peer-to-peer -peer, people that have been there before and that would be and I think that's a challenge in our community and I think those conversations are happening and I think they need you know they should be happening um, and we should be really moving towards that direction what's it going to take to make that happen is it ARPA dollars because we're talking about ARPA dollars these days. What do you, you're smiling. What do you think? <laughs> um, I, I do think it's a system mindset change, you know? Um, and I, I completely agree in terms of the police are not always the most appropriate. To me, it, that, that is a really last resort that I want the police to be called. A, because their job is to enforce the law, right? And so I, I get that, I understand that, but then there's so many, so much context associated with what's happening with a particular guest at that moment who is having um, some sort of crisis. Um, and, and that's not, and, and that's the main reason why I wanted, I wanted us to make this shift at Norma Hurst, simply because now when they come, they come for circumstances that are significant um, versus being annoyed because this person stole this person's shirt, you know? <laughs> you know? So the, the goal for me is to, is to utilize the, the, the police only when we absolutely have to. I, I don't think it's impossible, honestly. I do think it's a mind shift, and I do think we have to find individuals who can sustain, and, and not just, it's not just an issue of training, you know? Um, it's also an issue of the culture of where you work, and whether or not you see it as, you know, uh, uh, having preemptive relationships. To me, um, crisis intervention begins at the moment of relationship. You meet a person, you connect with the person, that's crisis intervention. It's, it's preemptive. You start there, and then you, you recognize those individuals who might be high utilizers of, of crises, and you build relationship with them. And so that way, when a situation does happen, the team is, has a better chance at redirecting or, or at least allowing uh, or um, suggesting other services for the person to provide. And we know who to navigate those people uh, to in the shelter because they all have relationships with various different CIT members. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I also think part of our response as a community is exactly what Billy said in terms of redefining a crisis. So what is a crisis? 
I know that from Frontline's perspective operating the 24-7 mobile crisis team, there are real acute crises that we need to police assistance with. And so part of uh, the opportunity that we have ahead of us with strategic planning, with thinking differently, is to think differently about how we partner with police. I know that we have um, several co-responders who are social workers and they accompany the Cleveland Police um, to intervene in mental health situations so that um, the, the appropriate response is is given. Um, we, I, I, so yeah, I just think that that is a real opportunity for our system to think differently about how we partner with the criminal justice system. Not, not to put them on the spot, Metro Health is here, and you were saying Metro Health has done a lot of this uh, good, maybe not so much on CIT, but a lot of work during the, the pandemic with helping to get people into long-term care, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, a huge shout out to Metro Health and their team of doctors responding during the pandemic. I mean, there is no doubt, you know, from mass testing to vaccinations to, you know, meeting a need when, uh, you know, as urgent as being unhoused during the pandemic, there's no doubt that Metro Health Hospital has stepped up and, you know, is continuing to think about, like, what are their next steps in, in care for the unhoused community. You know, going back, I do think that there is, you know, I would lay out a challenge to the hospitals also, and I'd say that like no one should ever be discharged from a hospital into homelessness, right? Like that, no one should ever be discharged into the hospital from homelessness, right? Whether it's from a behavior health case or, uh, you know, primary care that, and we see that oftentimes that people are, you know, you know, our people are going to the hospital and then you know, a couple hours later, they're, they're out, discharged, and living back on the street. And so, but I think like, yeah, I think there's, you know, having a system, and I, I'm also excited about the strategic planning that the continuum's undertaking and thinking about these uh, issues and the gaps, because I think it's, you know, n no one agency is solving all these problems, right? It's a systems response from uh, the work of permanent supportive housing that Eden's doing to the care that Frontline's doing to the emergency shelter work that Norma Herr's doing to the street outreach work and the advocacy work that uh, we're doing. Like, you know, this problem is so important and so great that we, we will have to work together to solve it. Yeah. Uh, one group that's, that's within the unhoused, a lot of times, it, we talked about this, the LGBT community, a lot of times uh, that's, someone said, oh boy, in the audience, if you couldn't hear. Uh, the, uh, a lot of times we, they maybe have extra difficulty in finding the place that's right for them, or they're not listened to. Women of color, a lot of times, seems are not listened to in this. How do we get around those barriers? Is it the mindset change, as you suggested, or is it more than that? It must be more than that. Okay, no, I think that's Any of you. I'm happy to take it. <laughs> no, no, I, I really believe, you know, that's such a, there's so many services needed in that, uh, in that area, and it's just, you know, we're in such, you know, weird political spaces in terms of trying to find our way, you know, in this and trying to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? And, and trying to find the right services and support for individuals. Because we're not talking about somebody sometimes who is just, who's unsheltered. We're also talking about someone, I'm thinking about uh, a, a young lady right now who was, was beaten at home because she was transitioning from you know male to female, and so 
there's the trauma associated with that, right? There is the shifting in the political climate and people making changes in, in what was normal to 15 years ago is different today from what we're, what we're seeing. And so being able to maintain that while providing care is so difficult. And just having the services that, you know, we had a, a lady, had a couple of individuals who were killed not that long ago. And it was so hard working through that and trying to get uh, uh, training in for not just the staff, but the guests going, hey, how do you take care of yourself, you know, when you're out there? How do you do this? And, you know, and it's too bad that you have to leave, actually have to put the, the, the care on the uh, uh, victim, you know? Um, it shouldn't have to be that way, but it kind of that's kind of where we are right now. But being able to provide that level of support and understanding sometimes when people are displaying this uh, uh, aggressiveness that we might see is rooted in trauma and rejection. And, you know, I mean, I think there's no more important uh, issue right now. You know, Cleveland is the epicenter of black trans murders, right? Um, uh, we, you know, we hear about a, a trans person being murdered in our community almost every, every year. And so I think there's no better, no more important conversation of like how are we building both um, a homeless system that is trans affirming, right? And that has services that are specifically geared towards the trans experience. I think we've, uh, I think a huge gap is like, I'm not, I don't know if we're sure, like where do we refer, you know, a trans person living on the street to be able to get trans affirm affirmative behavior health services, right? You know, and I think, you know, I, people, you know, I don't know, you know, people aren't discriminating, but they're not trained to be able to work with, you know, the people that we're serving. And so I think there's a huge gap and a, another challenge in our community is like stepping up and providing trans affirmation behavioral health services, particularly for people that can't go to the private, you know, and are on and need it to be, you know, low income people that need those services. Um, you know, I think NIAC has done some work, uh, you know, trying to build like a trans affirmation trauma care in our community uh, at the shelter level and have done some trainings around that. And I think, you know, it's, I think, you know, transphobia exists everywhere, right? And it both exists like within our agencies that we need to eradicate and uh, dismantle. But, you know, the folks in the shelter systems also have a lot of transphobia, right? And so, you know, even if they're greeted at the front door with a really trans affirmation person, they might, you know, they're fellows that stay in the shelter with them or in their, in their PSH building that m might not be that way, right? And so how are we taking a holistic approach to be able to like not only train our staff, but really, you know, the work is also like working in the community. And in our case, it's the community of people that utilize our services. Get, getting the right person to have the relationship, as you all mentioned, with the, the guest, uh, I think the way you put it was that you have people assigned almost to different guests to different uh, staff members. That seems like that's going to be the next major hurdle when it comes to helping folks who are LGBT who are coming in for, for services. What, what, what do you think? Uh, I did want to mention that Frontline yeah. uh, received some, some funding from United Way, and my colleagues can speak to this much more um, specifically than I can, but that there are efforts in our community to focus on the particular needs of that population and support them and their navigation through the homeless system and through the behavioral health system. So, um, so that, that important work is, is underway in our community. That's very good. I think that uh, we're about to question time, so we're about to begin the audience Q&A. 
and I'm Kabir Bhatia, reporter at 89.7 WKSU IdeaStream Public Media. I'm moderating today's conversation on the continuum of behavioral health care among our region's unhoused. Joining us on stage here at the City Club are Billy Gilliam, Clinical Director of Homeless Services at the YWCA of Greater Cleveland, Jennifer Harrison, Director of Behavioral Health, Housing and Employment Services at Frontline, and Chris Nestrick, Executive Director of the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org or on the radio broadcast at 89.7 IdeaStream Public Media. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And our staff will try to work it into the program. So may we have the first question, please? Hi, this has been very interesting. Uh, my question is for Mr. Uh, Nestrick. Um, first off, can you tell us, I'm sure it's hard to have statistics on this, but how many of the unhoused, what percentage of the unhoused uh, in this community, in Cuyahoga County, let's say, how many of them primarily have uh, behavioral health problems? And what kind, you know, what, what, what diagnosis, if you know, like bipolar, et cetera. But I have another question, too. Uh, it's Northeast Ohio uh, Coalition for the Homeless, and uh, I know, and of course, the title of this forum is on the unhoused. And I noticed there seems to be a shift in terminology from homeless to unhoused. And so, what is the reason for that shift? Thank you. Yeah, I might actually leave it to some clinical people to answer the first question. <laughs> uh, I don't want to put you on the spot. I, I, um, but I think we, in the whole scope of behavior health services, right? I think it would be. I would venture to say that uh, a large majority of people experiencing homelessness are also, you know, have like ne are in need of behavioral health care. Like I think our whole society is in need of behavioral health care. To be honest, uh, after a pandemic and everything else, you know, we've seen. Um, but I, I, you know, I think like, you know, language is important. Right? And how do we like show dignity to people and dignify people in the language we use, right? And so, and I think one of the mantras we do our work is like, you know, people aren't problems to be solved, they're people to be ventured with and cared for and accompanied. And so, you know, I think the word unhoused for me also, um, like housing is the solution to homelessness and unhoused I think doesn't lay, like no one is homeless because they made a bad decision in their life, right? Like there are systemic reasons in our community why, you know, one statistic I do know is like why like around 80% of the people that are entering into our homeless system are black, specifically black in our community, right? It speaks to systemic racism and injustice that is historical and, um, and so, you know, I think when we use the word unhoused, I use it because I think it's the burden of our, of our government, I think it's the burden of our uh, systems because housing is a human right and should be provided to, right? It is not, it, so I use it that way, right? Like they're unhoused because our community needs come up with a way to, to get people, to provide housing in our community to people because it is a human right. So that's why I use unhoused. Uh, I think also like people experiencing homelessness and people-centered language first is always really important. But I think on how specifically puts the burden on um, on our community and our civil society to respond to that uh, crisis. The part I would add, I so appreciate that because I, I completely agree. 
um, <clears throat> that when people speak to home to homeless, they sp they're speaking to the person. From my perspective, when we speak to unhoused, it's the circumstance. And I think that mm -hmm. systemically, we do have we have it bears a responsibility back on us to make sure that we solve that circumstance, as opposed to looking at the individual going, oh, so that we push it back over to them when we speak of that's a homeless person, right? Versus that's an unhoused person that we now have a responsibility to make visible, because I've always said that, that the population is as invisible. You know, people try not to see, you know, what's in our face every day. Now, in terms of mental health, you know, we'll see the, the diagnostics of uh, uh, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and all those type of things. I do think they're probably a little bit hotter than they need to be. Uh, we'll say that the underlying manifestations of multiple issues is usually a traumatic experience, right? PTSD, to me, is far more pervasive than we're giving it credit to for. It is far more pervasive, you know, but it's easy to say, and you're going to see people of color is going to get that diagnostic of bipolar disorder, mm -hmm. borderline personality disorder. Very rarely will you see, oh, this is PTSD, see what's, what's happening in this individual's life. And, and it's so, it's done so, it's done so often. It's actually, I've only seen a few actual real bipolar individuals in my whole career, you know, and that is like, that's, that's a different soapbox. I'm sorry, let me get off. <laughs> that's a different soapbox, because it's just such a thing for me. Uh, but PTSD is what we don't tend to deal with the way we need to be. And that's more, again, a systemic issue versus looking at a person and say, oh, that's bipolar. Let me treat this, just the symptoms and not the underlying issues that's causing the manifestation of these symptoms. How do you do that? Oh, go ahead. You were going to say. Yeah, I, I was just going to address the first part of the question, which was the prevalence of severe mental illness. So, in the general population, about five and a half percent of us suffer from severe mental illness. In the homeless population, unfortunately, or the unhoused population, thank you for <laughs> words matter. Yes, um, in the unhoused population, of course, that number is overrepresented to the tune of about twenty percent of uh, someone who is in a shelter or sleeping on the streets or in um, something that is not meant for human ha habitation, about 20% have a severe mental illness. And a significant proportion of those also deal with a co-occurring substance use disorder as well. So a and lot, of, lot the, of barriers. And those are all gaps in this continuum mm -hmm. that need to be looked at. We have a next question here. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Merle Johnson. I'm a member of the State Board of Education. And um, one of the gaps that I didn't hear mentioned was the school attendance gap. Uh, I'm wondering uh, what kind of relationships um, do you develop with the schools to help students with their attendance? I taught 40 years and I know that I was in Cleveland. We had thousands of students who were uh, unhoused. And I'm wondering what, what, how do you develop relationships? Because the state law says that if you're absent a certain number of days, you'll fail. And so how do we keep our unhoused young people from failing when it's not really their fault sometimes when they can't get to school? That's for any of you. You must have people that come up against this all the time. Yeah, you know, Project ACT in our community from CMSD is the, is the uh, group in our community that really works with uh, Folks that are going to school to be able to continue to get access to school. I know that uh, you, you know, you have you in our you. I think federal law requires that you're able to continue to go to the school that you 
uh, were going to before your experience of homelessness. And I know there's a lot of, uh, they do a lot of work to, with transportation with the families um, in our community to be able to get them attendance. I, um, you know, our, we don't see a lot of uh, school, school age children like living unhoused in our community, you know. I think the family shelter system also works really closely with Project Act to make sure the people that are coming into the system have access to transportation. Uh, but clearly, um, you know, I think I think one, something we're seeing is like family homelessness is is rising again in our community, and I think um, we're fully not fully like understanding the economic impact of COVID on uh, after some of the emergency ordinances are di are no longer in our community and what that'll do to our family system. I think it will be a really rough school year for many families uh, in our community. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, just to name, I think uh, a place for me would uh, be really upset if I just didn't name that, like, I think there's a, a really important conversation around mental health and youth and young adults in our community and, like, the need for specific services for young adults, both um, that are still in school and then have, you know, graduated or moved on. I think that question also underscores the interdependence and how inextricably intertwined our systems are. So um, gaps in the education system are reinforcing to you know gaps in the homeless service system, the behavioral health system. Um, so I, I think um, that we need to strengthen all of our systems because we have that recognition that we are all interconnected. We all are dependent on the success of the other systems. Could, oh, go ahead. The one thing I wanted to add to that is the, at least from my perspective, like I'm not in schools, but what I do know is that there's not the strongest mental health that exists within the classroom setting. So here's, and why, why do I mention that? It's, so it's not just an individual's experience who's experiencing homelessness or unsheltered who, um, suddenly cannot go to high school or go to school anymore. When I look at the number of young people that now exist at the shelter, it is, it's shocking. It's shocking to see someone 19, 20, like sometimes people think that there's this series of decades of events that happens that allows an individual to be unsheltered and are used to having a mindset that this is a person who's probably in their 50s to 60s, not that that's old because it's me now, <laughs> but. <laughs> But, um, but um, that that's what the, the population looks like, and that's not the case. We're talking about young, young adults, you know, and that is disturbing. So when you ask an individual how far do they go in high school, when, not high school, how far do they go in school, excuse me, we're not just talking about people who dropped out at maybe 11th or 12th grade. Sometimes these individuals stopped at 9th and 8th, you know. So that tells you that the system is bigger than just the fact that they've lost housing. Mm -hmm. There's other issues at play that didn't get addressed along the way. If you get them stable though, wouldn't that be an avenue to then eventually they could maybe go back, get that GED or go back to school if they're young enough? What, isn't that something that would be amazing to get some of these folks to be able to do that? Amazing is the word, so. <laughs> Miraculous. <laughs> so, so, but, I would just say that I think, you know, the the why and a place for me at the why and the the you know our community has really come around to try to begin to think about and work with um, young adults you know and to end youth homelessness in our community right mm -hmm. and that work's been led by a place for me Sisters of Charity Frontline in Eden uh, and they 
you know, I think it's, you know, there's work being done to put in a youth drop-in center that is specifically geared and will meet, you know, will work to meet some of the needs of, of young adults experiencing homelessness in our community with specific kind of informed care for young adults, right, including behavioral health services and stuff. So I think, you know, the work that our community has done around uh, ending youth homelessness in our community is, you know, I think deserves to be commended. Uh, and, you know, that work needs to continue. And I think the what's been really great about that work is we're, we do it from an intersectional approach, right? It's all these questions that we're asking, right? Like, you know, like what is behavior health and racism and LGBTQ community and young adults, like how does that all come together and how do we serve them? And I think some of the powerful, most powerful work has been led by folks with like young adults with lived experience in our community. And I think that that's really powerful. They must be the most effective when it comes to one-on-one -on -one, uh, going to interface with people who are going through this now, something they did five years ago. Right? Yeah. yeah, and something I, I would stand by is like people, the people that have lived through, been on house and have lived experience are the ones that have a lot to teach us about ending homelessness. Right, yeah. You mentioned, you use the term drop-in by the way, for education, and then earlier you could maybe have a drop-in for uh, uh, mental health services just out on the street. Where would you, where do we put these things? Old storefronts? old churches, libraries, what, what are your thoughts? If you, if you could go to city council, county council and tell them this is what we should do. I mean, there's, uh, I mean, I think we should put it in communities that they, that like in this case, the young adults like are working to pick a place and have a, a location that they want to choose in Ohio City. Um, I think we should be ra really wrapping our arms or, or supporting their decision to put it where they want to put it, right? Because they know where, where their people are. Uh, and then I think another challenge is like having a community that wraps around them and supports them, right? Like I think we, you know, NIMBYism is real in our community and it happens uh, for many different reasons. And, you know, making sure that we're like bringing the whole community together to support, you know, particularly these young people, but also like all, you know, any folks that are vulnerable in need of services, like, you know, I think that's really what we need to do. Point, good point. You have some applause there. And we have another question. Yeah, thank you. Um, my name is Jim Reesing. I'm a board member at Frontline. First of all, you're all amazing and inspiring, and it makes me wonder what I'm doing with my life. And, <laughs> and every, you know, I'm extremely grateful and thankful for everything everybody in this room does. It's really amazing, so thank you. Um, my question is about uh, police intervention, and you guys talked a lot about how do we substitute, you know, behavioral, uh, health professionals from, you know, with, I'm sorry, substituting police with the right professionals in mental health crises. And I, I wonder if you could talk about that a little more, like what really would need to be true to make that more effective? Is it education and communication and coordination or is it availability of resources or something else? Like what, what would really need to happen there to make that more effective? I mean, I would say really all of that, to be perfectly honest. Um, you do have to have um, team members, right, who are willing and able and compassionate to be able to walk into a system, into a crisis, you know, um, and to be able, part of the training I know for the CIT at the Y is A, the recognition of symptomology, first of all. What do things look like? So that way words like disrespectful aren't used. Like, oh, they're being disrespectful. Or words like uh, aggression, like, well, what is this person actually experiencing? What are you seeing, 
right? So being able to tr uh, uh, train individuals in symptomology and not just that. So, so none of the people in the CIT team are mental health professionals. However, they are trained at recognizing symptoms, right? They don't have to be mental health professionals to know how to do that, right? They just have to be educated. So that way when someone is declining, they send out a little warning and say, hey, check on Miss such and such. Here's what I'm seeing. Right? So there's got to be individuals who are willing to pay attention, right? To be training those in symptoms, recognizing how to uh, work within themselves in terms of what's happening to you when you're having a, 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 a intervention, a situation happen with a person. But it has to be preemptive to me at the point of um, relationship. When you spoke to what needs to happen in terms of, uh, of where people need to go for, I think people, we need to be able to go in more. I think we count on people to reach out, and I think that's unrealistic, you know, that we have to reach in and go places we're not always comfortable going, you know, and provide services for individuals. Um, that otherwise would not receive those services. So I do think it's an issue of funding for sure, but in training and, and recognizing that this is a process that will get better and develop over time. The CIT team at the Y is, I, I love them, they're phenomenal, but they're still developing and we're still polishing this, pro this model. Good point. We have a question here. Yes, good afternoon. Good afternoon. We have a text question that's come in. If we know the root causes of homelessness are systemic, like racism, redlining, mass incarceration, what are some systemic solutions that our city or county could provide to help support the gaps? <laughs> well, that's no small question. I was going to say, so, so, so. <laughs> we need another hour for that. You know, I want to highlight, because um, it, it made me think of it when you said that the Early Learning Center at the, at the Y, right? So um, individuals if, who may be at the brink of uh, being unsheltered, right? If we provide these services, and this is my, to me important about being preemptive, we provide these services ahead of time, right? Wrapping ourselves around the family, not just providing academic uh, uh, work for these uh, young, young ones, but also surrounding them with uh, uh, social and emotional support and providing that same support for their families. It's increasing the strength of their safety net, right? So if an individual have a safety net, they feel more at ease with walking through systems, you know, and it helps um, forge relationship throughout, throughout their, um, you know, academic career. But what's happening is in the very beginning, people, they go to school, they don't have the services. If a kid acts out or is challenging, they put out of the classroom. That kid gets used to a, a, a suspension. A depend and it, all you see is a transition that's going to possibly end up in a person who is unhoused because of all these uh, 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 circumstances that happen, that can happen at a very young age. So if we can systemically, now, now the question, my response is not, does not satisfy that entire question, but at least it provides, because I don't like band-aids, we do a lot of band-aiding, you know, but provides at least an early response to a potential circumstance. That's a good, good way to put it. Wouldn't want to add anything. I, yeah, I, I also think that some of the response, a lot of the responsibility um, and the work will happen at, at the systems level with the evaluation of the system using data, disaggregated data to identify where are um, the policies and procedures supporting unjust practices 
in the systems. Um, and I know, for example, the Adams Board, you know, just recently published its own strategic, mini strategic plan to focus on areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I think um, a lot of that work is being replicated at other, at other levels and will certainly be included in the Office of Homeless Services uh, upcoming strategic plan as well. You know, I would, I would just comment like, you know, on the systemic level, I think, you know, our community needs to come together. And I think it really comes down to housing, right? Like, I think we see the redlining and uh, the historical, you know, prevention of building generational wealth in our black community. And that's, you know, really why, you know, the reason, one of the main reasons why 80% of our system is black in our community. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we've recent, you know, declared racism as a public health crisis. And, and I think we really need to be moving towards like what are what are the big picture stuff? We have this new influx of money that's coming to our community that offers huge, unique opportunities to solve some of these uh, systemic issues and you know a robust packages and in, in, inverted into affordable housing in our community. Um, and you know I think some of it is also like continued to move. You know, the city council just passed pay to stay. You know, which is a huge, I think. Win, but I, you know, I think we also need source of income protections in our community to prevent, you know, discrimination in our community. And then, you know, there's no doubt the uh, the intersection between mass incarceration and housing sanctions is so obvious. So, like the next, you know, we need to be moving to fair chance housing so that people that are, you know, returning uh, from incarceration are able to access housing. And I think those, you know, those are big systemic issues that uh, I think, you know, the the money that's coming in our community can solve. And I, and I think it's really up to us and our leaders to make sure that it is, it is put towards that direction. Good point, good point. We have another question here. Hi, this is Lou. Uh, you guys all know Lou is infamous for very uh, strong questions which may crash the party. <laughs> <laughs> so in today's situation here, we know uh, healthcare system, especially mental health, and about the people without stable housing are two big stigmas in the whole society. So now you are trying to put two broken systems together. That's why we are having this party here. So the question is not only for the panelists, it's also for everybody here. If we all know these two systems are broken very badly, to increase the unhoused population in the community. But unfortunately, we can only get the government's help once for a while, maybe decades. However, the local effort here, CIT in a shelter is a good idea, but unfortunately, poor, uh, poor way to carry that out. I'm the proof of it. The problem here is, all of you sitting here, please think about this as a question for you, too. Will you really put your mind and effort into that? Don't forget, even the United Ways had to withdraw lots of funding into homeless programs a few years back. So there are lots of mistakes we go along the way to create the gaps we have today as big as Grand Canyon. So. For example, today's uh, panelists, we don't see any true representation from 
the unhoused with mental health issues themselves to tell you why they cannot get the uh, service, why they have no way to reach, to outreach to the good idea uh, Billy mentioned that here, we have to do in-reach. Lots of good ideas here, but the question is, how will we bring all these things as important lessons when we leave this party? party. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It sounds like you've all uh, been issued a challenge, so what are your thoughts? We have about two minutes. You have so many ideas, we can't, we can't fit them all into two minutes, but it seems as though this once in a lifetime, uh, the funding you were just talking about a few minutes ago, that might be an avenue to solve this, some of this. You know, just to, just to speak to, to, to lose frustration over the systems, I, I do understand. I understand that. I do think that, you know, we spend a lot of time dealing with symptoms. I don't think, and Chris has spoke a lot about that today, we don't we don't put those fundings and these idea sets and these changes of cultures over systems that maintain them, right? So we can keep putting Band-Aids on things, but it doesn't change the wound, you know? So if we don't deal with those issues of systemic racism that causes these things and allow ourselves to, re to relieve the oppression of others by acknowledging our own privilege, then we're gonna continue to see this happen. What are your thoughts, Jennifer, Chris? Well, I think Lou said it well and that we're all here and that we all have a personal responsibility and some of us have organizational or system level responsibility. And so that is the question is, is where do we go from here? How do we come together um, to solve the very complex issues facing uh, the homeless system and the behavioral health system? Yeah, <laughs> sorry. I often have to say this, I think like we need to love more. Like we just like to really basic core is like when Billy said it, like that reaching in is an, an act of love, right? Telling someone to go somewhere else is not like a form, you know, is not a form of love. And I think like, you know, as a, as a, from a systems approach, like the force, like building policies based on love and, and the people that, uh, and not based on, you know, like capital or, uh, other reasons, but how do we, like what would what would be, how would love require us to spend ARPA dollars is like a good question, and I think <laughs> okay. it would be fundamental in how we think about uh, that money and to solve some of these systemic issues. Yes, ARPA and love, everyone can mediate on that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chris, Jennifer, Billy, for joining us here today at the City Club. Today's forum is the second forum in the City Club's behavioral health series in partnership with Metro Health with additional support from Sisters of Charity Foundation of Cleveland and also from the Woodruff Foundation. We would also like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by Eden Incorporated, Frontline Service, Lakewood Congregational Church, the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, the Living Water Association, Northeast Ohio <coughs> Coalition for the Homeless, Ohio City Incorporated, Sisters of Charity, Health System, the Woodruff Foundation, and the YWCA of Greater Cleveland. Thank you all for being with us here today. Coming up next week, Wednesday, August 17th, the City Club will be joined by Nan Whaley, the Democratic candidate for Governor of Ohio. And then on Friday, August 19th, the Cleveland Metro Parks CEO, Brian Zimmerman, will discuss what is next for our region's emerald necklace. 
Tickets are still available for each of those forums, and you can learn more at cityclub.org. That brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again, everyone, to our panelists, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club. I'm Kavir Bhatia, and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.